morning, Tara. All right, you're with me. There we go. Okay. So when we celebrate biblical holidays, we look to Scripture. So if we're celebrating Easter or Christmas, we look to Scripture to find out why we're celebrating. And if there's anything in Scripture that tells us how to celebrate it, we do it. We look to Scripture, why we're celebrating. Uh, But we also have our own traditions. We have, over time, either in our family or in a certain culture, we may have certain songs that we sing at Easter or Christmas or or different prayers that we pray or we might do activities to get the kids involved, etc. Every year since the Passover, which happened in the 1400-something B.C., when God delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery by having them sacrifice a male, one years old, unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorpost to be delivered, set free when the the angel of of God, when God passed over uh, all of the homes that had the blood of the lamb on it. Um, And the Egyptians and Pharaoh finally let them go that very next day. Ever since then, they have been celebrating that deliverance. And over time, there have been traditions that the Hebrews, that the Jewish people have had to celebrate Passover. Now, I'm going to attempt to explain a few of those traditions, and I'm not an expert here. Uh, I did get to speak with a Messianic Jew this past week, and I'm going to try to implement some of those, uh, talk about some of the traditions during the, the message. Now, one of the traditions that the Jewish people do at Passover, that they celebrate every year, is a tradition called the Afikomen. Does this ring a bell to anybody? I don't think I have a slide of that, but Afikomen. It's the only Greek word that's used in the Passover celebration. And the word, we don't know how this started. Um, There's some speculation of a few different theories about what the word means. The two theories are, it means either I have come, afikomen, or that which comes last. Okay, so what is the tradition of the afikomen? At the beginning of the Passover meal, The host would take three slices of matzah, which I'm about to do and did not practice this, three slices of matzah on the table, and the host would remove the middle piece of matzah, and then the host would break that piece in half. Okay, that wasn't bad. Then he would take the bigger piece of the matzah, and wrap it, wrap it up, and hide it somewhere in the house. So I'm gonna hide it over here. Hide it somewhere in the house. Hide the bigger piece known as the afikomen. And towards the end, at the very end of the celebration and the feast, usually the children would go and find the afikomen, that bigger piece, and bring it back. And it was to symbolize that the best, the bigger piece, the best was still yet to come. Okay, the best is yet to come. So a little bit of background before we go into the text today. Two days before Jesus' crucifixion has now turned into one day. The Jewish leaders are fixed to kill him. Judas has already sold him, and he knows that his time is short. But before he's handed over to be on trial, to be tortured and then crucified, he wants his disciples to know why this is happening. And that leads us to the main idea of the passage today in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 29. The Passover 
pointed to the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus who inaugurated the new covenant. The Passover pointed to the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus who inaugurated the new covenant. So here's how we're going to break that down for our roadmap. We're going to talk first about preparing for the Preparing for the Passover we see in verses 17 through 19. And secondly, the prediction of the betrayal of what Judas was going to do as Jesus voluntarily, voluntarily let it happen. So they prepare for the Passover in verses 17 through 19. There's the prediction of the betrayal in verses 20 through 25. And then Jesus presents the new covenant in verses 26 through 29. So, Preparing for the Passover, verses 17 through 19. In those verses, I see a stealth mission taking place and then setting the table, getting ready for the Passover. So what do you mean by stealth mission? Look again at verses 17 through 18. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So remember, at this time of year, celebrating the Passover, the city he's talking about, Jerusalem, would have been packed over six times the normal population at the time. All the families want to make sure they have a place to stay and to celebrate the Passover and have a lamb and all the supplies they need in order to celebrate it properly. And Jesus knows that if he goes out to make these preparations, that the religious leaders may very well take him, capture him, put him under trial. He could no longer go out in public the way that he used to. He knows his time is short. And so he sends out his disciples. And the reason this sounds like a, a bit of a spy novel or a stealth mission is that according to Luke's gospel, it says he sent out his disciples, we know to be Peter and John. And as he says here in Matthew, he went, go find a certain man, very vague term, like you're going to find a certain man. And in Luke's gospel, it says, this man you're going to find is going to be carrying a pitcher of water and follow that man. And he's going to lead you to a different location, right, to the upper room where they're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so he has to be stealthy about this. He has these, these plans that he's prepared to make sure that he's not captured beforehand and that they have a place to celebrate the the Passover. And so he sends his disciples out. And he made sure to tell them, tell this man that you find. In verse 18 it says, my time is at hand. What does he mean by that? Well, his time that he's about to be betrayed and tortured and crucified. He wants him to know that he knows it's right around the corner. Now, if he didn't say this, if he didn't let his disciples know that he knew what was happening, that he knew he was going to be betrayed, that he knew he was going to be crucified, it may seem from any outward perspective that Jesus has lost control. Keep going in and out again. Okay. Let's see. Yay, thanks, Rachel. Okay. 
So from an, out, from an outside perspective, it may seem like what's going to happen to Jesus is far out of his control and hectic and handed over and tortured and all of that. But Jesus is saying multiple times that he knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. It's not outside of his control. And you may have already thought to yourself maybe multiple times in your life when something happens, surely this was not part of God's plan. Surely this, what's happening in my life is out of control. Life can really feel that way sometimes. And no matter how many times we tell ourselves this is out of control and, and there's no way this can be fixed and God you know, is not in control of this situation in my life, he always, always, always is. God is in control. And so stealth mission accomplished. The disciples find this person who is letting them use his upper room for them to celebrate the Passover. Then they have to set the table, verse, verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So what did they do to prepare the Passover? According to Exodus 12, there were three items that had to be at the Passover. And those three items were the unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and a lamb. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and a lamb. Why those three items? Why those three foods? The foods were to remind them of what had taken place during the Passover, during the past deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt. So for the unleavened bread, that's bread without yeast, bread without leaven. He was teaching them, as he did back in 1400s BC when they were delivered, that the salvation was coming for the Hebrews right around the corner. They didn't have time to put the yeast in. The very next day, they would be leaving Egypt. Even though they had been there and their ancestors for 400 years, salvation was coming quickly. He says, have your sandals on, your, your staff in your hand. Don't put leaven in the bread. Salvation is coming quickly. And so they would eat unleavened bread at every Passover meal. Secondly, they would eat bitter herbs. Now, the bitter herbs were meant to, to make them cry as they ate it. Extremely bitter. And... Um, I looked up and talked about some of the different ingredients that were in it, and um, I actually asked my wife, Anna, to create a concoction of bitter herbs and to perhaps get a few of us involved here to try this, to kind of stick with it. And I told Sky beforehand that I would pick on them, and I'm going to do that for a second, so if you could come up. I didn't tell Max or Jonah that I was going to pick on them, too, so if you guys could come up here, too. <laughs> okay. This is going to be harder with a microphone, but I'm going to try. Okay, so I'm going to explain as they eat this. Should we not leave your dad out of it, too? Should we get him, too? All right, you got to go come up, Pastor Rob. I'll leave Heidi out of this. Yeah, come on up. They want you. Oh, that's... that's. Okay, so they would eat bitter herbs. And before, before we do this, I haven't tried it yet. Um, so before we do this, I'm going to explain why. They would eat the unleavened bread, remembering the quick, speedy deliverance that they were going to receive uh, from God, from Egypt. Then they would eat the bitter herbs. Why? It's bitter. It's supposed to remind the Israelites of their bitter past, their bitter history. They would read Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, talking about the Egyptians. So they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So as they eat the bitter herbs, 
They would explain and go over the story of how they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and the bitter work that they had to do as they ate the unleavened bread dipped in the bitter herbs. So hold this a second, please. time. Don't spill, Dennis might kill you. Really, take a good, take a good. (laughs) (laughs) Not that bad? Okay. I'm kind of glad to hear this. Yeah, this is awful. You guys don't want this. Yeah. Yeah, Can I have some more? <laughs> it is kind of tasty. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you. Clap for our volunteers. Appreciate it. With the bitter herbs. You know what the problem is? She can't help but make really tasty stuff. Like, just always impressed. So what the Hebrews would have been eating would have been quite a bit more, um, quite a bit more bitter than that. It's a, it's a bit bitter. Um, okay. And as they would eat it, they would, they would talk about their history and the fact that God knows the bitter history of every nation, including what's happened to the, the nation of Israel after the Exodus. That wasn't the end of their bitter story, was it? God knows the bitter story of every nation. He knows the bitter story of every person and all that we have to to go through, both what's inflicted on us and the sins that we do that cause harm for others and ourselves. He knows it. But fortunately, the songs that we were singing, there's beauty even in our tears and that God is working even through the tragedy and the bitterness of our lives. It doesn't escape his notice and it is for a purpose. It's part of the overarching story of redemption. So they would eat the unleavened bread. They would eat the bitter herbs. Thank you, Keparudasis. <laughs> and then they would eat a lamb. And the lamb, I didn't bring a lamb, sorry. <laughs> Maybe another time. I think, you know, every time we, we go over this message, it can be, uh, we're going to learn something new about both what the scripture says about it and some of the, the traditions over time that, that bring to light uh, the Passover. But the lamb was to represent both the justice and the mercy of God. If you remember, the, they, they were to kill the, the, the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And if they didn't, the firstborn would die that night. Now, the Egyptians had murdered the firstborns of the Hebrews. We read about that in Exodus chapter, 20, chapter 1, when the new Pharaoh became worried that the Israelites were going to take over. They murdered all their firstborns. And the fact that God is a God of justice is revealed in the lamb, but also that he's a God of mercy. Because it wasn't just, um, it wasn't only the, the Egyptians that could have been rescued if they put the blood of the lamb on the door, that Hebrews had to do it as well. Because God knows that everyone, including people that are called by his name, his chosen people, are, are sinners as well and need that mercy, that blood of the lamb. And so they would take the lamb, they would take the bitter herbs, they would take the unleavened bread, 
and um, the disciples would have purchased all those things to set the table and to get the Passover ready. They would have had the lamb all ready for a few days for inspection to make sure it was an unblemished lamb, but they would have gone out and purchased all the other materials um, for the Passover. So, the Passover, the preparations for the Passover. It pointed to the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus who inaugurated the new covenant. So I want to talk about that next part. The voluntary sacrifice of Jesus that leads to the prediction of the betrayal in verses 20 through 25. So verses 20 through 25, with the prediction of the betrayal of Judas, we see Jesus do a few things. We see him kill the mood of the party. We see him keep it vague, as in he doesn't reveal yet who it is who will betray him. And then we see Judas continue his plan. So, prediction of the betrayal in verses 20 through 25. And before we get to that, I want to set the scene for a minute. Because it says in verse 20 that when it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve. Most of you, probably all of us, have seen this next painting I'm about to show. Leonardo da Vinci's famous Renaissance painting of the Last Supper. So, beautiful depiction. And I'm not sure if da Vinci was trying to be historically accurate with his painting, but I will tell you that it's not. There's a few things. Uh, first of all, they would, not have, they would not have been sitting on a high rectangular table like that. They would not have been sitting on chairs, on high chairs like that, as they're eating the Passover meal. Instead, it would have looked more like this, this next photo. They're reclining at table, as it says in verse 20. They had U-shaped, these kind of half circle tables where they would be reclining around it with the food in the middle. So just uh, a more accurate portrayal of what it would have looked like as they're eating together during the, the Passover celebration. And so while they're eating, while they're celebrating, while they're going through some of the traditions of the Passover that they did every year, year after year, including that Jesus has been doing with his disciples, something very, very different happens this time. And it starts in verse 21, where Jesus kills the mood. As they were eating, he, Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? One of you will betray me. If you want to know how to kill the mood of a party, <laughs> accuse someone, generally, <laughs> of backstabbing you in the near future. That could really change the conversation at the table and the mood of the party, you know, you imagine mom or dad praying over Easter dinner and then they sit down and people are laughing and the kids are having fun and they say, one of you <laughs> is going to kill me. You know, one of you is going to betray me. That would really cause fingers to start pointing and all that. But Jesus had a very good reason to change the mood, to change celebration to mourning. He had a troubled spirit as he said these words, one of you will betray me. And look at the response of the disciples. It says, very sorrowful, one after another, they came to him and said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I want us to notice a few things about that. They all came up to him and said, is it I, Lord? The first 11 disciples did that. This reveals a few things. First of all, it reveals that nobody, when he said, one of you are going to betray me, Nobody pointed their finger and said, ha, I knew it was Judas. There he is. I've, I've seen it. I've seen how you have treated Judas differently. 
I've seen how you care for us and you love us, but you haven't been loving or caring for Judas or serving Jesus. When, he, when Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, he didn't get to, to Judas and say, not you. <laughs> he washed his feet as well. He had served and cared and loved for all of them. He didn't treat them differently in that way. Secondly, we see a rare, correct response off the bat from the disciples. Instead of pointing their fingers at everybody else, they look inward. And I think we can say confidently, none of them wanted to betray Jesus other than Judas. Right? The 11 didn't want to do that. But they knew in their heart that they had the capability of doing evil beyond what they ever thought they could. They knew their heart. They knew their, their inward thoughts, right? They knew their selfishness. They knew the, the, the times that they've had doubts. And they thought, if someone could do something this heinous, I want to make sure it's not me. And they looked inwardly, and they asked him one after the other, Lord, is it me? Does that resonate with us a bit? Am I capable of doing something like that? You know the honest struggles and doubts and issues and thoughts that you have. Is it I, Lord? Jesus doesn't relieve the tension right away. In verses 23 to 24, he keeps it vague by answering. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He could have said, he's right there, it's Judas, get him. But he didn't do it. He said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish. It's a general way of saying, the one who has eaten with me. They've all been eating with him for multiple years. What is Jesus doing here? Part of what he's doing is fulfilling scripture. In Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, King David speaks about someone close to him that he took sweet counsel with, that he ate with, that he had meals with, that he trusted, that betrayed him. He said, I could, have, I could, I could bear it if it was an enemy, but it was a friend, it was a, it, was, it was a brother. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. That betrayal was pointing forward to the betrayal of the Messiah. And it's also very possible that Jesus was giving Judas another opportunity. He hadn't yet handed over Jesus. So another chance for him to confess it, to tell everybody what he's done, and to go against what his plan was. But he didn't. Judas continued his plan in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You've said so. Did you notice the difference between the other 11 disciples and what they said and then what Judas said? All the disciples said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Master? Judas said, is it I, Rabbi, Teacher? You can sense the distance, not that Jesus put between him and Judas, but the distance that Judas had placed between him and Jesus. The difference of calling him Lord, Master, and teacher. Is it I, rabbi? Jesus' response is, you have said so. Another way of saying that is, your words, not mine. Or, Judas, you know that it's you. And it seems pretty clear that these words were private to Judas, because if he said that out loud and all the other disciples heard it, you know it's you, Judas, you've said so. I highly doubt that Simon the Zealot would have let Judas leave that room. 
I doubt that Peter would have let Judas leave that room. It would have looked a lot differently. But Jesus continued to keep it vague to give Judas the opportunity to repent and to show that Jesus was voluntarily giving himself over to be betrayed and to be sacrificed. The Passover pointed to the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus who inaugurated the new covenant. So then we get to the new covenant in verses 26 through 29. Now, according to John's gospel, Judas had left around this time. After Jesus had the conversation with him, knowing that it was him that would betray him, this private conversation that the other disciples didn't hear, and Judas went out into the dark of night to betray him. And for Judas, for Judas, it's been dark ever since. But then Jesus presents the new covenant in verses 26 through 29, as he speaks of the bread, the cup, and the future. In verses 26 through 29, as he presents the new covenant, remember that the disciples had just heard that one of them would betray him. And they're looking inward, and they're scared because they know their hearts. They know what they might be capable of, even worse than they could imagine. And Jesus has not yet relieved their tension to let them know that it wasn't them, that it was Judas. Except interestingly, according to John's gospel, John did know. Jesus sitting next to John indicated to him that it was Judas. Interesting side note, not going to go into that. But the rest of them didn't know who it was. And so they're thinking about their own heart, their own sin. And Jesus changes the conversation and gets their attention off of themselves and onto him the one that would bring forth the new covenant. The new covenant was promised for a long time before they sat down at that table. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, and other places, God had promised that one day he would give a new covenant in which he would give his people a new heart and write his law on their heart and would forgive them of all of their sins and would put his spirit within them. They've heard about these promises, but now Jesus is telling them how it's going to happen through him and when it's going to happen quickly, speedily, around the corner. So when he picks up the bread, the unleavened bread, in verse 26, and he says, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Up until he said, this, this is his body, the disciples would have been, yep, we eat the bread, we pray over the bread, this is all the way it always is. Every time we do Passover and we celebrate, it's about the past. Jesus is saying, it's, it's about right now. This is my body. And side note, none of the disciples, I think if we asked them, do you think he literally means his body is the bread? I think they would have said, no, he's using a vivid object lesson like he's done several times before. When he taught about baptism, he wasn't teaching that the water turns into the Jordan River. He's doing a vivid object lesson, side note over, about about what he's about to do. His body that would be broken for him. The bread used to represent the speedy deliverance, the unleavened bread of the Israelites that would quickly escape Egypt and escape the bondage of Pharaoh. And Jesus is saying right around the corner, the very next day, speedy salvation was coming, where his body, the bread of life, would endure the weight of the sins of the world and be cracked. And then he took the cup in verses 27 through 28. He took a cup. Now I'm going to stop there a second and talk about another Jewish Passover tradition. So with each Passover, and we don't know exactly when this started either, 
but they would take four cups, probably a communal cup of wine, and they would pass it around during the Passover meal, and they would read Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. And I have here the four promises that are in those verses. And the first two promises would be read at some point during the meal, and they would take a sip. And the last two would be, would, they would take a sip after the meal was done. And so you see in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, you read through those verses, and you see those four promises to the Israelite people that were given before they were brought out of Egypt. And the, the tradition is they take a sip for each of the promises. Now, it's, it's widely accepted that Jesus would have raised this cup, it says in Luke's gospel, after the meal, for the second and for the third and fourth cup, he raised the cup, the promise about redemption, and he's saying this promise of redemption has to do with him and with his blood that would be shed for his people. Verses 27 through 28, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God knows that there's a far worse taskmaster, far worse enemy than any worldly pharaoh, and it's the sin that indwells the human heart. When God looks out on the world, he sees people enslaved to sin, but not only enslaved to sin, choosing to sin. As he said, they, choose, they love darkness more than light. And he sees a world that is, that is both choosing sin and in bondage of sin. And he's saying the greater exodus, the greater deliverance, not just for the people of Israel at a certain time in history, but for the whole world, is going to be accomplished through his blood. And when we know, when we look inwardly like the disciples did, we know the need for this. We know that we, like everyone else, have the tendency to hide things to lie, to gossip, to be impatient, not thankful, to hold grudges and refuse to forgive others as God has forgiven us and shift blame and be greedy and think we're better than others and see other people's mistakes as worse than our own and on and on and on and on. He sees the human, the sin in the human heart. And Jesus is saying he was going to inaugurate the new covenant in which God would forgive all of the sins of his people. He offers a solution, and that solution was giving himself to offer forgiveness. You know, we celebrate communion every week at Terra, and it's for all those who have simply believed, who have trusted in what Jesus said that he did, believed that he did, that he tore and broke his body on the cross and he shed his blood for the deliverance of the world, including our deliverance, the forgiveness of our sins. And we celebrate that every week. But in verse 29, it, he, he's making the point that it's not just about the past. Even talking to his disciples, it's not just about the past deliverance of the Israelites in Egypt. And it's not just us looking back, even though that's part of it, looking back on what Jesus did and dying on the cross for our sins. It's also looking to the future. In verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We look to the future. 
when because of what Jesus did, the best is yet to come. He's going to return and set up his father's kingdom. The best is yet to come. Now, I started with that tradition of the afikomen. The afikomen was the bigger piece, after being broken in half, of the middle piece of matzah that would be hidden away and then returned at the end. And again, we don't know how this tradition started, but I want to point out what believers have been talking about for a while, about what that represents, um, about what we believe that can represent when you think about it. The middle piece, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, second person of the Trinity, would be removed, brought to earth, broken in half, wrapped up, which I already did before, <laughs> and hidden away in a tomb, but wouldn't stay there, would be brought back. And one day we'll come back to inaugurate the kingdom of God forever. The best is yet to come. You see? I just want to say I'm grateful for uh, the people I was able to talk to this past week of some of those traditions. And in having that conversation, they even said they learned something new. We're always learning. <laughs> and we're always, uh, we're, we always have the opportunity to grow and to see more about our eternal God. So let's pray together as we continue to worship. Lord, you created everything. And yet you want to eat with us. You want to sit down as you did with your disciples. To have conversations with us. To enjoy meals together. To be with us. And God, you went a long way to make sure that that happens. You gave yourself. You gave your life so that we could be redeemed, we could be purchased, we could be bought with the true blood of the Lamb, your blood, Jesus. And Lord, you said you're not going to drink from the fruit of the vine again until you return with your Father's kingdom. That sounds like anticipation to me. That sounds to me like something you're looking forward to. <laughs> Thank you for making that possible that we can be there because you have forgiven us through your shed blood. Every single sin, even the ones we don't even, we're not even aware that we've done. How incredible. Lord, would you come back quickly? I pray this in your son's name. Amen.